Welcome to our 11th and final installment of our series on marriage and family in the Bible. I'm going to open us in prayer and then kind of lay out what we're planning to do this morning. So let's, let's ask for God's help. Father God, we thank you for gathering us together as Christ's church. We thank you for saving us in him. Thank you for making us a people who are baptized into one body by your spirit and in whom your spirit is continuing to renew uh, your image that has been marred and distorted by sin. Thank you that our hope is secure in sharing eternal glory with Christ because our sins are forgiven. And we thank you that even now we are being more and more uh, made into the likeness of Christ in every area of life, including the intimate circle of our family relationships. And um, we thank you for being with us throughout this series, and we trust it's been profitable for our hearts and our lives to see you more clearly and to be equipped to live in the pattern that, that accords with your word that we know is profitable and beneficial for us and magnifying to you. And we pray that this lesson would continue that and really just wrap up and help, help us to review and remember what we've seen and um, just further stimulate us to walk uh, by faith, to walk in your ways in a way that uh, glorifies you in this in this fallen world, and also that you give give me wisdom, uh, especially with dealing with some of the, the questions that, that have been that that people have asked. That you grant me wisdom in responding, give us all discernment. These issues uh, are just go far beyond in their complexity. What can even be answered in a classroom setting just requires uh, tons of discernment and and Christ-like wisdom. So we pray for that, not only for these questions, but all the issues that come up with life in, in the, the realm of family and marriage. And we pray all this to your glory in Christ. Amen. So we're on our last lesson. This is a conclusion lesson. What we're doing is sort of wrapping everything up and putting a bow on it. So we're going to do three things. The first thing is just going to go over every lesson in an overview format, kind of high level, and just remind you about the highlights of what we covered. And, um, you know, 11 weeks is a long time. So those of you who are on the quarter system as students, if you ever go back, you're like studying for finals and you look at the stuff you learned about in the first week, it feels pretty remote. You're like, wow, we've covered a lot of ground since then. So I, I think there can be value in just looking at everything all over again from start to finish. Not everything, but the big things. Um, thankfully, there's no final exam. We're not studying for some kind of big high-pressure thing. It's just a, a pedagogical move to review what we've seen. And then we're going to deal with four questions that I've received, uh, not all in the context of like, give me your questions, but some of them are things that have just come up in the course of the course uh, with people asking me really good questions. Um, and so we're going to deal with some of those, and uh, there may be some opportunity for kind of interaction over those things. These kind of get into the realm of wisdom, application type stuff, which, is, which can be really fun to discuss. And then finally, I'll just give a few ideas for kind of, okay, where do we go from here? maybe ways to, to keep walking forward in, um, in accord with what God's taught us through his word about marriage and family, especially in the context of one another in the local church. So review, Q&A, moving forward. That's our three, that's our agenda. So first of all, we're going to review. Um, the first lesson was the introduction. We called it Rebuilding the Foundations. And we looked at kind of the state of marriage and family in the West today, how it's kind of a mess. Um, we have these values like libertarianism that says, why shouldn't I be free to do what I want? Self-fulfillment that, that's sort of in the spirit of the air that says, why don't I just do what, what feels right to me? 
in so many other areas of life, that's the norm in our, in our day. And then pragmatism, just an idea of I'm going to do what works. I'm going to do just what seems to get the right results. Um, and all around us, uh, those and other worldly values, as they kind of mix in with this issue of marriage and family, we see evidence of ruin and kind of a crisis in this realm. We see evidences like high divorce rates. We see um, extramarital sex being very normal, very normalized in our society. That's a sign of, of, of ill health. And we have a lot of gender role confusion in many forms. Uh, those are just a few kind of indicators. Things are not well in our society. But then we looked at the church. This, this stuff affects us in the church. Uh, this isn't just out there stuff. This is in here stuff in our hearts and in our, in our midst as members. Um, we recognize humbly that we deal with sin in this area. We deal with sin in our marriage and our parenting relationships. Uh, we deal with sexual sin, pornography, things like that. Uh, we deal with um, temptations, maybe things like same-sex attraction. These are things that, that happen here. These are things we're walking through as the body of Christ and need to be alert to how to minister to one another in the, in the, the context of these things. Uh, and we also, as the authors of our book that we've based the course on, argue we we don't there's a lot of kind of superficial treatment of marriage and family that sort of pastes a bible verse on how to communicate better things like that there is value in some of that but really the approach of our course and of the book we're using has been let's try to be rigorously biblical and theological in regard to what is god doing here with marriage and family what's god's intent kind of going right to the roots and the foundation to really understand that uh, and then how we should live will of course flow from that but it's not just a superficial engagement. How do I have a better relationship kind of thing? So we've tried to do that in this course. Um, then in the second week, we looked at marriage in the Bible, and we really focused on the first few chapters of Genesis, the creation account, Genesis 1, and then uh, Genesis 2, where uh, God gives the woman to the man in the garden, and God gives them marriage. And we saw that marriage is part of God's good creation before the fall. Um, God gave man and woman to one another in the institution of marriage as one flesh, Back in chapter 1, we saw that he gave man the duty to fill the earth with fellow image bearers, um, and marriage is one of the ways we do that. We have children. The husband and the wife work together to, uh, to uh, fill the earth with, with um, God's image and God's glory and to subdue and rule the earth. Um, and then we saw, though, in Genesis 3 that our race fell into sin, that sin that was occasioned by distortion of marriage roles and led to all kinds of further distortion of uh, marriage roles of husband and wife and the relationships between wives and husbands. And then all through, you look through the Old Testament narratives, you just see further and further kind of escalation of fallenness. You see things like polygamy. You see things like homosexuality. You see things like adultery. So just the wheels kind of fall off with regard to what God had intended, Genesis 1 and 2, for that one flesh union. All kinds of ways that it gets messed up in reality, uh, in a fallen, sinful, post-Genesis 3 world. Uh, we saw the wisdom literature, though, pointing to, in the midst of that, in Israel's story, God pointing to some pictures of the ideal, uh, parts of Proverbs, parts of, song, of songs that point to what marriage is supposed to be and always was meant to be, uh, even um, as it alludes to, to the higher reality of Christ and his relationship with the church. And that comes into focus in the New Testament. Uh, we see in the, and this is a constant theme as I was going through these, uh, re remembering so many different ways that we saw the Old Testament has a certain valuation of kind of marriage and children and so on. And the New Testament says, comes along and says, yes, and. You know, it's not a no. It's a yes, and. There's also, there's also uh, different things that, are, that become valued in the New Testament. 
And Jesus affirms everything the Old Testament said about marriage, about God's intention for one flesh, union. But this new concept comes along that loyalty to his kingdom displaces family in terms of ultimacy. That loyalty to his kingdom might actually cut against marriage and family relationships. And to be aware of that, if it comes down to it, loyalty to Christ's kingdom wins out. And um, Paul and Peter teach uh, that wives should submit to their husbands and husbands should lead and love their wives with a Christ-like sacrificial love. So that's marriage, kind of the overview of marriage in the Bible. We looked at uh, maleness, femaleness, and sex within marriage. Greg taught on this. And we learned kind of in, the, in that lesson, talked about marriage as a covenant. It's not a merely human contract that just people decide to get together and, and make this deal together. It's something more than that. It's something divine. But it's, all, it's not a sacrament in the sense of it's not a, a means of God conveying saving grace. Uh, it's a relationship. It's a bond that God creates between man and woman. We heard this definition that God designed marriage to be a sacred bond between a man and a woman initiated by and publicly entered into before God, normally consummated by sexual intercourse. Um, and marriage belongs to God. He created it. He defines it. And he gave sex as an integral part of marriage, uh, of the good design in marriage. And Greg taught us uh, that in God's good design, sex is one vital and beautiful aspect of the one flesh union that a man and woman share in marriage. Um, that physical intimacy and the kind of broader relational intimacy are, are, are mutually related. They kind of feed each other. Um, and we learned how sex is for procreation and pleasure and companionship, just like marriage in general. Um, and that this, this pleasure kind of hints at fuller joys that await Christ's people and the great, the great marriage to which all marriages point. Uh, but we also learn that because we're in a fallen world, even this really good part of marriage has fallen and there's many hindrances to uh, and ways that the fall has, has, has made uh, sex difficult like, like the rest of marriage, uh, awaiting final redemption. So that's that. Um, before I keep going, that's three lessons. I want to stop. We're going fast. Any thoughts about... I know this is all very high level, so we're not getting into particulars, but questions or things I could clarify that I've said or things that are confusing or things that I didn't say that I should have said. Like, oh, no, you, you left out the best part of that third lesson or whatever. <laughs> okay. We looked at family in the Bible, uh, fourthly, and we learned that the, the biblical vision of family is not so much patriarchal but pat patricentric, which uh, patriarchal means like father rule. And that eh, it's kind of a nuanced thing, but the issue there is that sounds a little bit too authoritarian, a little bit too much like a king or a, a general. Um, the idea is a little more like uh, uh, the father is sort of kind of the hub of the wheel. He's sort of the center, uh, not an iron-fisted ruler, but he, he bears final responsibility for the well-being of his wife and his children. So there is a, a primary authority and responsibility, but it's not some kind of strict kind of iron-fisted hierarchy. Um, and we saw that the wife and mother shares the work of providing spiritual um, instruction and physical nurture for her children. She's his suitable helper, as we saw right there in the garden in Genesis 2, in this as in every other area of life. And children have the responsibility to honor and obey their parents. And part of that is receiving instruction in God's ways. Uh, the, the vision that we have in the Bible is parents are teaching God's word, teaching God's covenant instruction to children. And children are listening, learning, and, and, and obeying. Um, now, both testaments uh, emphasize and promote this model of the family. Again, though, there's that tension where the Old Testament says this is the model, and the New Testament says yes, and um, this family gets 
subordinated under the more the higher priority of loyalty to the kingdom of God. Uh, where Jesus even says some strong things like Luke 14, 26, if anyone doesn't hate father or mother or so on, they're not worthy of me. And what he means is he doesn't actually want us to hate. He wants us to be so deeply devoted to him and his kingdom that there's no comparison without an an earthly family. So uh, membership in God's kingdom emerges as a new and more significant category. Also Mark 3 where... You know, that Jesus' mother and brothers are, are, are trying to get into him. He's, he's in a house and it's crowded. And so your mother and brothers are trying to get to you. And he says, who are my mother and brothers but those who do the will of God? Essentially, the people of God, the community of, of God's people uh, form a new family that, that even cuts across old family. So once again, yes and is kind of the, the Old to New Testament transition. Then we looked at, those are sort of very baseline foundations. We, looked at, we started getting into special issues. Uh, what about the decision to have children? You know, p- people, couples processing through. And by the way, someone, uh, someone mentioned to me, uh, it came up recently, that like every couple in this church, every married couple either has children or is expecting children. That's at least of like childbearing age, which is kind of funny. So um, no, no one to point the finger at yet right here with this one. But no, we learned about um, the biblical principle that children add great value. Children are a great blessing. They're, they're valuable. They add great value to the family. The right perspective on this is not some kind of legalistic head counting of like how many should you have, but it's more a matter of thinking biblically, having a biblical set of eyes and priorities regarding the value of children, and just being aware of some very strong anti-child currents uh, in our day. And we kind of identified some of those things that in our secularizing culture make it hard to have children, and even in our minds, like make it hard to think the way that you have to think to have children. Um, We learned about adoption, which is great. The, the, short, the short on that is it's great, both as an act of mercy and as a reflection of the gospel, what God has done in Christ to bring us into his family. Um, we learn about abortion, which is totally not great. So the opposite, it's sin. It's the killing of the unborn. We, we see biblically the, 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 the unborn child in the womb is a human being and has full dignity as the image of God. And so anything that would, would um, kill the life of the unborn is, is, uh, is sinful and wrong. And because of that, we kind of use that as a measuring stick to discern in areas like uh, contraception, artificial reproductive technology, some of these tricky areas where um, there's some clear black and white there with regard to the life of the unborn being, uh, being sacred in the image of God, but also some, some more conscience and judgment calls, like with regard to is it legitimate to use con- contraception at all? We kind of looked at things like that. Um, we also saw, of course, like every other area of sin identified in this series, abortion is tragic and evil, but like every other area of sin, it's forgiven for those who are in Christ. And so we never want to put any kind of sin up on some kind of pedestal, like it's unforgivable or it's, it makes you a worse Christian because you have this in your past. Um, we, all, uh, we all are ruined in sin uh, before the law of God, and we all have a complete need of Christ's mercy, which, which abounds to us. So we want to give that word of encouragement that God's grace abounds to sinners. Um, we looked at wisdom and child rearing. And, uh, you know, speaking of sin, <laughs> an area where, where a little bit of sin comes up is child rearing. Uh, we talked about parenting. Um, there's a, a lot in the Bible about parenting. We looked at uh, Deuteronomy 6, uh, telling parents to instruct their children in the way of God's covenant. We looked at uh, the wisdom literature, like Proverbs, calling children uh, to know God's wisdom and to walk in the fear of the Lord parents kind of walking with their children and calling them to that. We looked at Ephesians 6, again, the duty for parents to raise up kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um, 
But parenting raises many issues and questions, and Greg solved all of them. So listen to it comprehensively. Listen to that lesson. No, um, he did a good job of raising a lot of issues and giving us some pointers about how to approach some issues. But of course, it's far beyond the scope of one hour lesson. But we looked at things like, like physical discipline, um, dealing with kids with media access, technology. Um, we, we just looked at the idea of methodology, like, like the danger of maybe being so tied to a methodology that's extra biblical, that's not specific in scripture, and feeling like this is going to make sure my, I get the right results with my kids. Just kind of the danger of that kind of mentality and expectation, just the need of ongoing discernment, humility, uh, respecting each other's differences of opinion as parents, though we can learn from each other and we can have interactions, but being careful to distinguish between biblical necessity and then uh, just judgment calls and opinions um, and then we looked at singleness Matt taught on singleness and people can be single for a number of different reasons uh, people can just never have married people can be maybe disabled and prevented from marrying people can be divorced people can be widowed uh, so there's all kinds of different singles in some ways um, and the Old Testament portrays singleness pretty much just as a burden uh, it's, it's not always a result of personal sin but it's a hardship and uh, again, the New Testament doesn't deny that, but then says, but 1 Corinthians 7, we saw there actually is a distinct value in singleness. As Paul says, well, I'm telling you, it's, it's kind of nice. Like in the ability to, as a single, he talks, especially in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35, about the, the, uh, the freedom that one has to minister and to serve Christ uh, as a single. So there are pros and cons. And the strongest pro, the strongest advantage in singleness in the kingdom of God is the, the freedom to devote oneself to Christ in a, in a special way, which means ministry to others. Um, so the biblical trajectory goes from singleness being bad, it kind of regarded as bad in the old covenant, to being regarded as, well, it's also good in the new covenant, to being the universal condition in the age to come. Um, so Matt, I thought, did a good job of reminding us that singles among us, in, in, they have a and not only do they have value in being kind of especially free to minister and to serve Christ among us, but they also remind us of where everything's going, uh, that marriage and family is not ultimate, and that's a really helpful reminder, their presence in our midst. Um, and then Matt also gave good counsel to st strive for contentment in the Lord as singles, knowing that can be a challenge, um, even while holding that godly desire before him for marriage. There's, there's still a need to strive for contentment. We all, in every area of life, that's, that's such a great battle. Refer to our series on contentment on that one. But also, as a church, we need to be alert to singles, and they can fall between the cracks. We're thinking families and families sometimes in our interactions, couples and couples, but be thinking of, like, who are the singles that we can have rich relationships, have them over as, you know, as we're having others into our lives. Um, they're, they're a very valuable part of the body. We don't want to forget them. Um, we looked at homosexuality. Next, and we saw that there's kind of two ways that homosexuality goes against the Bible's teaching. The first way is that it's not included in God's yes regarding marriage and sexuality. So God gives a very clear template of what is permissible, what is his will, and it's a man and a woman being married. That's, what, that's the only context in which sex is blessed by God. Um, it's also explicitly part of his no. He speaks against it. In several passages of scripture. We have narrative in Genesis 18 and 19. We have law in uh, Leviticus 18 and 20. We have epistles in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6. We looked at all these texts. It's very clear biblically. The issue is not unclear. 
Uh, today, though, we're sadly dealing with uh, revisionists, uh, biblical scholars, theologians, pastors trying to argue that the Bible isn't saying what it is saying, uh, influenced more by the spirit of our age, but the issue is, is not unclear. The question is, will we please God or men? Will we follow God or men? That's kind of the, the real question behind what, what, which way we're going to go in terms of our beliefs. But uh, this, again, this issue isn't just an out there thing. It's not just a hypothetical about people out there. This is a, like sin cuts uh, through us. And there are maybe people in our, in our midst who struggle with this in their hearts. Maybe you know somebody, another believer. How do we deal with this personally and as a church? And we saw that it's really the same stuff of progressive sanctification writ large. It's uh, taking hold of the gospel's promises and the gospel's forgiveness and the transforming power of Christ. Um, using all the same resources that Christians use to battle every area of sin and temptation. But we also looked at this matter of kind of whether this sin defines your identity and how unhealthy it is. Even some well-meaning Christians that are sound in the ethics of it who still affirm this idea of an identity that that, uh, one would have like a homosexual identity as part of who you are. And that is an unbiblical concept, really unhealthy so he said, no, sin doesn't define your identity. We saw in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, but now Christ identifies you. Christ forms your identity. You're a new creature in him. Um, and as a church, we bear each other's burdens as we fight for, for holiness in this area as in any other. Um, two more lessons, but I'll stop. I know we're going fast. We're covering a lot. Uh, and I'm talking a lot, too. Any uh, questions or input about any of these lessons we're, we're skimming over? Yeah, Paul. Patricentric, yeah, father-centered. So ark is like rule. And it's not a totally unbiblical concept. The the idea of rule comes up like in 1 Timothy 3 talking about elder qualifications. He has to rule his family. I think the authors of the book and and then we kind of drawing from that, just we want to nuance that, that it's not some kind of authoritarian, it's not like a, a military kind of thing. Like I just tell you what to do, you do it, that's it. You know, it's not, it's, it's a lot more, um, relationally involved. Yeah, because the culture, the culture nowadays, uh, even, even three or four years ago, you didn't see it. You didn't have a negative con- connotation with patriarchal, but now for this new culture, which is seeping into the church, unfortunately, yeah. patriarchal is seen as a negative term. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think I said the very first lesson, someone asked about patriarchal, and I said, I'm not going to fight over the word because it's not a biblical word. Um, but if we can define our terms, you know, and and I and I'll, I'll affirm, yeah, some of the some of the allergy over patriarchal is good, and some of it's probably bad. Um, the bad is that people are rejecting the Bible's model of of the husband as head. Uh, that's that's very clear, and that that you're right. That objection has become very mainstream, even in evangelicalism, in the last few decades. The good allergy to it is that is that there is such a thing as abusive and authoritarian husband and father occupying that role and even a misunderstanding of thinking the Bible is calling for that. And so, sadly, there are men that that are abusive and and, uh, inappropriate in their use of authority. So we do want to say, I think, like so many other things, what the world, the world is reacting somewhat against bad things. But their their reaction is godless and extreme and unhelpful. It's like from one bad to, it's like just a pendulum swing from one bad thing to another. But we want to affirm there is something bad there that it's right to, to speak against. 
Um, so I, rather than fighting over what word to use, I'd rather just have that conversation. But yeah, it's a good point you make. It's a great, great question. Um, good. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Lori. Of family mm-hmm. and the priority of church, mm. and um, how you would I mean, because there's a temptation, yeah, both ways to yeah, yeah. go to the family or to neglect. In terms the of life priority, like you could be so right. insular as a family, you're kind of neglecting the church, or yeah, you're so involved in the church, you're yeah. Versus in that, I would just say, um, like for instance, I you know I talked about Luke fourteen twenty six, just the idea that that uh, loyalty to Christ and His kingdom is. First, of course, I would also say that, you know, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but um, loyalty to Christ and his kingdom and, and the, the call to discipleship and training people to observe everything Christ has commanded has home implications. It's not like a, it's not like a, we don't want to make it a dichotomy. Like you only have, you know, eggs to put in this basket or the other. There's overlap. But there is some, some distinctness too. So I would just say the idea of loyalty to Christ is first. And that is, that is of course, there's no getting around. That's church. Uh, that has a church expression as well as a family expression. I'll put it that way. You have, uh, you have intermingling like Titus 2 where the, and I think uh, Patty taught on this yesterday at Jen's uh, baby shower. <laughs> I heard it was good. <laughs> good job, Patty. Uh, get up and, why don't you get up and get No, <laughs> just, uh, uh, the idea that the church relationships are a matrix for training in family is the idea of like the church acknowledging that your family role is a really important part of your walk in Christ. So it's not the church trying to trying to pull families apart, so to speak, but church trying to come up alongside one another and say, let's help you do, do family more maturely, both husbands and wives and moms and dads. Um, any other thoughts on that, Greg? Or, yeah. I can answer the pretty one. <laughs> um, yeah, just to add to what you said, in a lot of ways, it's it's the outworking of love the Lord your God with your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those aren't um, dichotomies. They're, yeah. they're, they're a fullness of, of, of both of those things and playing out in the family. And, and maybe one aspect of it is sometimes we think of those as you know, either be involved in the church, you know, either be faithful to the priority of the church or be faithful to your family. Mm-hmm. Like they're opposed and they're not, you know. We, yeah. we tend to sometimes think of priorities like, well, God first, my family second, <clears throat> church, you know, and that's just a false way of thinking because right. life doesn't work that way. It's a it's a fullness maybe with the, the centering of everything on God. Yeah. And then just working it out, there's wisdom. You yeah, know? and, and one, one good thing too is like, one of the best things your family needs is church involvement. But there are times when, say, your other needs your family has. I mean, like, I can't go to this thing this time. You know, we have needs, whatever. It's So, like, there, there's discernment and wisdom needed. But, yeah, part of the it's not zero sum is part of what your family needs is church. Part of what church needs is your family. <laughs> like, I think of, of elder, part of the elder qualification is, like, if he's going to be an elder, he, he has to be managing his family well. He has to be taking care of responsibilities there. So if a guy's like, the church needs me, guys, I always just got to be out, and there's no sense of taking care of home responsibilities, um, it's, it's disordered. Uh, so, yeah there, there's, yeah, there are tensions at times, but, yeah, they're not, they're not competing ultimately. Yeah. 
Yeah, Christine, that's a great question. Uh, the qualifications was one that I was definitely thinking of, but also the faithful with little and faithful with much. I think yeah. it's often like, you know, like, uh, you know, your, your marriage is strong, that helps with the children, yeah. that helps with the church service, yeah. that helps with everything. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, you know, it's again, there's breakdown in any of those places, so there'll be breakdown out yeah, there's sort of a foundation and building up, or a kind of fountain that kind of spills out sort of a model. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, well, you're kind of anticipating the very last lesson, which we'll get to in just a moment, but we, we talked about divorce and remarriage uh, real quick. We talked about how, you know, God's intent for marriage is a lifelong union. Um, sadly, there in our fallen world are ways that that, that, that doesn't happen, or that doesn't, isn't fulfilled as God intends. Uh, he does join a man and wife together as one, that's what he says back in Genesis 2. Jesus, a wave in Matthew 19, cites that and says that's, that's the pattern. That's what God is doing, joining together man and woman. Um, and Christians debate over whether divorce is permissible in certain circumstances. Um, based on texts like Matthew 5, uh, 31, 32, and Matthew 19, 1 to 9, and 1 Corinthians 7, various parts of that chapter, the traditional view, which Greg espoused and the other RCG pastor elders espouse as well, uh, is that exceptions do exist for sexual immorality and a non-Christian spouse leaving a Christian spouse, sadly. These are, again, these are sin. It's, it's always a result of sin one way or another. Um, and that latter case has potential to extend to cases of, of abuse. So we want to say there, there, there's room for, uh, for understanding it that way. Um, there also may be time for separations that aren't divorced. So that's another category that, that needs to be in the picture potentially, sadly, because of the way sin might go. Um, and again, God forgives and restores in Christ. Uh, this is a really sad area of life, and, and it touches on many of our lives, we want to say. In identifying sin and righteousness, we want to be quick to say, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And uh, uh, we're a new creature in Christ. And, and uh, So we, we, we also talked about, um, you know, if this is something you're dealing with at any level, this is the narrative. These are complex issues, so get counsel. Talk to, talk to your pastor elders. Talk to... Uh, trusted Christians who can walk with you in it. Uh, and then finally, yeah, this, these questions really helpfully raise this last issue, which is marriage and family in the church last week. Uh, Matt led us through kind of this extended meditation on this question of what's, a, what's the relationship between these two areas of life, family and the church? Um, is, is the church a family of families? Not quite. There's some truth in there, but it's, it doesn't quite capture because uh, it's a spiritual family of individuals who have come to Christ in repentance and faith, some of whom are in families together, which is a great blessing and, and a wonderful opportunity as a family. But there's also uh, discipleship to Christ cuts across family lines at times. You'll have a non-believing spouse and a believing spouse who's a member of the church. You'll have uh, singles and so on. So we don't want to be so exclusive as to say family of families. Um, and it's also great when these two reinforce each other, when... Uh, the, the church is coming alongside to reinforce and supplement family relationships. Say, um, for kids, we talk about kids and youth. And uh, we don't have to have a model that's either like, it's all on parents to do all the training of kids. Or, just drop your kids off and we'll do it for you. <laughs> drop your kids off at youth group and we'll parent them for you. We saw, no, primarily it's at home. That's parents' charge. We saw all those texts. Um, but, but we can have mentorship and gospel instruction alongside that in the local church that's really complimentary and helpful. And so, um, so that can happen. And we can also just have, as a body, again, this model of Christ said, go out and baptize and teach them to observe all I've commanded. And the local church is this, this incubator where we train each other to observe all that Christ has commanded. 
And so a lot of that plays out in the family. So a lot of what's going on in the local church, whether public instruction or one another kind of relationships, uh, discipling and encouragement, can, can look like helping each other do family relationships well in a way that's mature and honoring to Christ. So helping kids uh, honor their parents, helping parents be better parents to their kids and wives and husbands be better spouses uh, for one another. So the church can be a training ground for godliness in the home. It should be. Um, this class is one way we're trying to do that, but it's far from, the, uh, far from exhausting the potential for that. And uh, Lord willing, we're just looking for ways we can keep doing that. So that's, uh, that's it for the overview. If you didn't come to any other lessons, that's fine. You came today. You, you heard it all. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Of course, uh, a lot more detail, a lot more interaction over these matters. So I do commend you the audio we have um, we've posted. Any final thoughts about what we've covered before we get into some of the Q&A that I've received? <laughs> yeah, Randy. Going back to uh, church versus family, church and family. While you were expounding on that, I was thinking about what Jesus said about rendering to Caesar what is Caesar yeah. and rendering to God what is God. That was kind of at the surface. That's just talking about money. Mm -hmm. But at the deeper level, it looked to me like he's talking about your spiritual responsibility and your worldly responsibility, yeah. which is the church and your family. Mm -hmm. well, would that be Jesus yeah. saying that? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a legitimate um, it's a legitimate uh, application of that principle that Jesus is teaching. When he says, "Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's." He's kind of teaching there are different kind of kingdoms or spheres of responsibility that Christians legitimately owe things to each. But it all fits within our what we owe God. And he kind of when I preach in that, you know, you know, I brought the point that. Caesar belongs to God, right? Like the coin, the coin is in Caesar's image, so it belongs to Caesar, and, and everyone's in God's image, so we all belong to God. But that's still, you can't say, I belong to, I belong to God, therefore I have no obligations to civ, uh, like civil authority. He is saying, oh, pay the tax. You know, and you see Peter saying, um, pay everyone what, or I think uh, Peter talks about this. Um, Paul does, I think, in Romans 12 like, or 13, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, respect, revenue, honor, just the emperor. Pay everyone what you owe, rightfully owe them, kind of under God. And so even though those texts are dealing with civil government and the kingdom of God, I think it's the same with, with the sphere of like, of like family. Like pay to all what you owe them. Uh, following Christ doesn't mean you don't owe the, your, your parents' honor or, or so on, your responsibilities you have that God's ordained for you. If that concept of spiritual and worldly uh -huh. actually relates to church and family as well, because that's spiritual and worldly. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> is it spiritual and worldly? It's a great question. I don't know if I would. Yeah. No, it, no, that's a great question. I don't know how I'd put it exactly. I mean, yeah, I, I think I would say, not world in the sense of the fallen world that opposes God, but in the sense of material, kind of material versus spiritual, yes. Yes. Yes, the, the, um, the family is a, is a material responsibility as opposed to spiritual, even though there are spiritual concerns within it. Yeah, yeah. Good question. It's a good, thoughtful question. Um, yeah, any others? 
So now I'll deal with some questions you've already asked. So I got one question. This is good. Someone said that, um, well, all these are good. That's why I'm, I'm bringing them up here. So I don't have to keep saying this is good. This is good. Right, one of them. One, only one of these isn't good. You have to guess which one. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, you've said that procreation is one of the core purposes of marriage. What about marriages that occur after childbearing years or in couples with infertility? So I said in a few different places that procreation, having children is one of the, one of the important core purposes of marriage. And someone said, well, what about marriages where there are no children? Either they're biologically could never be children uh, because of the age of the husband and wife or, or uh, maybe um, infertility. Now, I will, I will make a quick little asterisk and say I think there might be, in terms of wisdom, a difference between a couple who gets married and then finds out they're infertile and people, individuals who know they are infertile, trying to decide whether to get married. Wisdom-wise, that latter, to me, maybe is a little bit of a longer conversation. After bracketing that out, let's just say, does, does not having children somehow invalidate a marriage? If we were to say that procreation is part of one of the most important purposes of marriage. And what I'd say to that is that not, I hope this isn't too confusing a sentence, not every legitimate instance of a thing has to fulfill every good purpose for that thing. Um, so I would even actually urge you to consider the sexual organs of people who never marry. Um, are those body parts good? Yes. Are they given by God? Yes. Are they, uh, do they have other good functions besides uh, sexual uh, intercourse? Yes, they have other good functions. But because of the legitimate circumstances God has ordained for their lives, they won't be used for one of their centrally divine intended functions. That doesn't mean they're illegitimate or bad. It's just there are life circumstances God has ordained where they're not always going to be used for all of their rightful um, purposes. And I would say it's kind of similar with marriage. You can say, um, pro and also I would say, it's important to, to distinguish procreation is one of the main purposes of marriage, not the main purpose, not the only or the even primary main purpose. But the reason that, we, that I said earlier and have said that it's one of the purposes of marriage is kind of the logic that's implicit. So we had in Genesis 1, the Bible calls us, when he's, when he's creating man in Genesis 1, we have God saying, let, let us make man in our own image. Let them be fruitful and multiply. So we have the intent to procreate, like right there, at the beginning of, of God's intent to create man in Genesis 1. And then the next chapter, he gives us marriage, which I think is significant. That's like, let's, let's fill the earth with, you know, let's multiply. And then he says, now I'm going to give you this institution, this relational kind of platform that will accommodate that purpose of, of multiplying that uh, we hear in Genesis 1.28. Um, so it seems, it seems reasonable to say that so being fruitful and multiplying is one of the core tasks God intended for humanity as a whole, not necessarily for every individual, for all kinds of providential reasons. So it doesn't mean you're less human because you're not multiplying and having children. Uh, and it's the same way. Marriage, marriage is the only legitimate context for that, that uh, creation ordinance of be fruitful and multiply. So it's, it seems to stand to reason that procreation is one of the purposes for uh, for marriage, uh, an opportunity to do this thing that God intended for man to do. Um, but this, does this mean that folks who are uh, beyond childbearing age or, or uh, infertile, that, that marriage is illegitimate for them? Not at all, because as we also said, companionship and pleasure 
are other uh, purposes, good biblical purposes for marriage. And, it, and just because one good central purpose of marriage can't be fulfilled because of providential circumstances doesn't mean that the others are uh, not legitimate. So you don't see any biblical instruction barring, say, older people who are beyond childbearing years from marriage. It's still, it's still every bit as legitimate in God's sight. Um, but, I would, again, I would distinguish uh, a couple that marries and isn't able to have children is different than a couple that marries while being closed off to wanting to have children. Where that, we would say, that's violating one of God's given purposes for marriage. That is more of a disobedience issue or rejecting of God's good design if you're just completely closed off to having children and getting married. Uh, so there's a difference between God has providentially closed me off from doing a certain thing versus God has said this is good and I'm rejecting. I don't want it. Does that make sense? Any other, any other thoughts or questions about that? Yeah, yeah. Christina and, then, and David, you both had. <laughs> I, I wonder if you're going to say like, like conflicting things. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make yeah. help suitable to yeah. is there a ranking between that and the be fruitful and multiply. Um, uh, yeah, I wouldn't rank them. I would just say all of it. Yeah. Companionship. Well, because companionship, I would say, is just a broader, well, it's not just companionship. It's help. I would say, and we said back, back when we dealt with this, that multiplying is one of the things for which man needed help. He wasn't going to get that done without a wife, right? So... But, but that's not all God gave Adam to do. He was to tend and keep the garden. He was to be God's representative ruler on earth. And uh, there's all kinds of work-related implications there. And uh, the wife is his helper for that too. So it's just a, that's broader. Yeah, good question. Was that all you were going to ask? Yeah, David? Yeah, she doesn't get my point. didn't work. So yeah, I think, uh, I mean, as Christians, we all acknowledge we serve an all-powerful God. So there's certain examples in scripture and even you know in current age where God opens and closes the womb, you have yeah. people that medical community says they'll never have children. They have children, you know, right? Abraham and uh, obviously Sarah. Yeah. So it's just like leaving leaving room as as much as we think somebody isn't ever going to have kids in this marriage. Yeah. God does. God can do miracles, right? Right. Right. Yeah. So just being humble about our assessment of how certain even those things are sure God has done some amazing things with regard to fertility in the Bible, and uh, he can do what he wants. Yeah, Zach? I've heard some people say before that they decided not to have children because they thought they'd be able to serve God better yeah. without children. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? I mean, it's obviously a good motivation. Yeah, yeah. But is that maybe stepping... I would question whether you should get married if you are... If say, well, we can serve God better without... Paul says kind of like, oh, you want to do that? Don't get married. In 1 Corinthians 7, it's like, yeah, don't get married. And you can be free to, but I don't see any biblical room for that attitude of like, we can get married and not. Seems to be the assumption that if you're getting married, if you can, you're having kids, of course you want them. Um, and I would say that's maybe a more, more biblically consistent mindset. Not maybe. I believe that's a more biblically consistent mindset. Yeah. Top. Adoption. Yeah, yeah, adoption's great. We just said amen to it. Uh, it's a great act of mercy, and it's a great reflection of the gospel. Adoption's one of the central, like, salvation pictures that the Bible uses, that God adopts us wayward sinners into his family as his children. Um, so it can really image that, that grace that we have in Christ. Yeah, I wouldn't say in place of. I would say it's also valued. And there could, you know, it's a great idea if, 
whether families already have biologically have their own kids and want to add to them, amen, praise God. Or if, they, if God has closed the womb, that can be a great way. Well, maybe God is providentially directing us toward this other way of raising children that also has this, this benefit of, of, of extending mercy to children in need. So, yeah, all of it. All of it. Yeah, Blake. Uh, just to piggyback on Zach's question, um, do you think that, that this is something I've been thinking about, um, do you think that it's appropriate for either a believer or, or a man and what are um, a, a couple to mm-hmm. unilaterally decide they're going to have children or not have children or get married mm-hmm. based on their own opinions? Mm-hmm. Or do you think it's because I think the Bible makes it clear that God is the helm of the ship yeah. in our lives. And so I wonder if it's biblical to even put ourselves in the driver's seat and make those decisions. Because ultimately, yeah. we need to seek out every decision from God in prayer. Yeah, I, and I, I wasn't sure if I, if I needed to mention that. Yeah, that's a good And it kind of gets to the stuff we were on the lesson of whether to have children. We dealt with sort of like some little bit grayer areas with regard to is contraception legitimate at all and at what level and what we do want to be aware of the what what's been called the contraceptive mindset which is just a kind of a clean disassociation of like sex from 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 having children and or this idea of like just overly kind of customizing our lives uh there's there's some danger there but doesn't mean it's altogether wrong to use but yeah um I would just say there's always danger in godless kind of autonomy with regard to how we think about our lives. And just like, what do I want is just kind of a dangerous leading question. <laughs> um, even though there are freedoms, so it's complicated. But yeah. Gary, you had a hand up, and then I'll go to the next question. Yeah, I was just thinking on you know marriage and, and why it is so important, isn't it? I think, unfortunately, I don't, I, you know, that's why you're the pastor, and I'm not, because you probably kind of, but you think of all the metaphors that are in the scripture that that uh, describe our relationship between Christ and the church. Mm-hmm. He uses marriage. Mm-hmm. So marriage must be a good thing. Amen. Because if that's an example yeah. of the relationship between Christ and the church, yeah. then maybe it's a good idea that, okay, I can get married yeah. because it's a good thing. I don't have to get married to have children. I don't have to not get married, but it's but mm-hmm. that metaphor of marriage, and then that puts a lot of responsibility on us Christians, which is kind of tough, is, okay, what kind of witness are you among non-Christians if yeah. your marriage isn't good? Yeah. And so you have to, you know, you have to really work at marriage then. Yes. You know, you, but you want to be a good example. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, so I, I take marriage very seriously. Yeah. And, uh, and that Hebrews 13 tells us that to, to let marriage be held in honor among all and, and for that reason um, exactly like it's, it's, a, it's a, a very important institution God's made and it reflects things about the gospel and so when we as Christians do it well we can be, we can be honoring Christ and showing something of Christ to the world or we can be cutting against that so that's a good, good point um, great I love that we're just generating discussion I'm glad to be like ending the series on like we want to say more and think more and so that's, that's where it ought to be um, I have the, my, my second question I'm going to put at the end because it might, it might lead to even the most ongoing discussion and I don't want to like eat up all our time and it might, it might get me in I don't know if someone's going to be offended at it so we'll leave that to the end um, quick one why didn't you mention Rosa, Rosaria Butterfield when you mentioned 
books on homosexuality recommended them. Um, and the deep, thoughtful reason for that is that it totally slipped my mind because she's great. Uh, I, I, from while everything, I recommended a few books on homosexuality, nothing by her, and it was totally not intentional. I haven't read any of her books on that. I've read one of her other books. I've seen some like interviews and stuff she's done, and from what I've seen, she's really courageous, discerning, trustworthy, and biblical on these issues. She was a, just should I say, she was a literature professor at Syracuse who was lesbian, and the Lord is a great conversion story. The Lord saved her. She turned away from that that life to follow Christ. And uh, she's just a really, a really um, wonderful voice on these things. And I would just recommend her work to you. Um, so, yeah, that was not intentional at all. That was easy. Um, ne- the next question, can, can teens be church members? How would that fit with their family obligations? Yes, stay tuned. We're about to publicly affirm two teens as uh, members in the church. Praise God for that. So uh, you, can, you can infer that we, we said yes as, a, as church to that. But, um, and we've, done, we've had teens be members before. Um, in particular, it's going to be uh, uh, Selah and Eden, just to put them on the spot even more. Um, but church membership, with all of its privileges and responsibilities and accountability, is this gets into last week's stuff. It's partial overlap with family. Um, we saw that family doesn't completely fit within church, and church doesn't uh, only have families. It has individuals, uh, singles, or people in a mixed marriage. Um, and it's also important that church authority and church relationships honor the boundaries of kind of family relationships and family authority. So um, it would be unhealthy if, say, a, a teen were to join the church and the church, and especially like church leaders, were to say, like, okay, now your responsibility is to, is to be under our authority and not your parents. Like we're going to kind of draw you away from your parents' uh, authority. That's, uh, that would be an unhealthy practice of church authority. Rather, uh, they're kind of mutually, they're partially overlapping and mutually kind of, um, kind of supporting, supplementing each other. And we can think of, I mean, the example of a wife, a woman who's a wife and mother, or just a wife, say, who's a church member. Uh, okay, no, my, my example woman's a mom. So she's a wife and mother. She's a member of a church. She has obligations to her family at home. She has obligations. She's under her husband's authority, headship. She has authority over her children at home and she has also at church she has accountability she has relationships she has obligations and authority uh, over her she is not a partial member she's not a member mediated through her husband she's a member everything a member has she has she's a a part of the body of christ Uh, we think of like galatians 328 there's neither man nor woman jew nor greek we're all one in christ um Yet part of the church's role for her life is to teach her to ho- obey all that Christ has commanded her, which, again, includes a lot of family relationships, her role in, in the home. Um, like Titus 2.4, where older women are training younger women to love their husbands and children. So help you follow Christ in this realm of your life faithfully, which, which it gets into the weeds of your, your obligations to those relationships. Um, and that's... That's, that's good. That's how it should be. The church isn't trying to interfere with her family relationships. Um, we are encouraging them. We're equipping her to live in a godly way in them. The same with husbands who are dads, fathers, etc. It's like equipping men who are you know, you know, to be faithful dads and fathers, uh, dads and husbands. Um, sadly, there are, like, there are special cases, abuse, say, where, the, where one sphere of authority has to get in and intervene with another. The state does this too, by the way, and that's good. Uh, where there's abuse in the home, the state should intervene and the church should intervene. 
when it has to be. So there, these are not absolute uh, brick walls uh, separating out authority. But, but when things are healthy, the church should be upholding family relationships and authority. So what that means with teens is we're, we're bringing this teen in and we're saying, yeah, you're a member. Keep pursuing and cultivating relationships with other members and doing every, you know, coming to our gatherings and taking part in the Lord's Supper and, um, and, and forming relationships of, of encouragement and accountability with others. Um, and part of what we're going to be doing is equipping you to honor Christ in your home, which means honoring your parents. Um, and so, of course, teens are in a transition period where they're honoring their parents, but they're kind of getting more and more agency in terms of making decisions in their lives. So it, it's great. The church can be alongside and, and, like, helping those teens walk through those transitions, which is a really cool thing. So, yeah, it, that's how it should look, and, and it, it, it's a great thing. So amen for that. Of course, um, we, these are for baptized uh, teens who've made a profession of faith and uh, gone through the waters of baptism. We, we, we only have baptized church members. We believe that's consistent with biblical models. So any thoughts on that? Does anyone have any reason why these two should not be <laughs> publicly affirmed? Yeah, Paul. Mm-hmm. Is the father still responsible for the father and the mother? Are they still responsible for the for the uh, child moving forward in their twenties and thirties as far as their confession of faith and if they fall away or whatever? Is that a, oh yeah? Is that a uh, you mentioned that you mentioned the responsible or the qualifications for an elder? Mm-hmm. If you have an elder that's that you're interviewing or potential elder yeah. interviewing, and they have a child that's 35 to 40 that has fallen away from the faith, yeah. disassociated with the church, is that something that is held against the elder, or once they turn 18, they're not responsible for their walk anymore? Well, yeah, that's a great question. I would actually say it's, it's kind of C. Uh, it's a little different. So, um, so you're talking about the elder qualification, I think especially in Titus 1. I don't remember yeah, the verse. Yeah, and then it says, like, he has to... He has to Rule his children. He has to have faithful children or believing children, not dissipation, not not like party animal kids, basically wild. So um, that that Greek word, just to be brief, that Greek word could mean either believing or faithful. And so there's some debate as to whether the the elders' kids need to be Christians or they need to be faithful children. And the example that he gives has to do with their conduct, their outward conduct of their life. Um, and some, some take that as they have to be believers. Um, I am persuaded that he's, he means more, it's a, it's a matter of, of the kind of lifestyle of the kid, more faithful. And I believe that would be in the home of that, of that man. And a couple of reasons why. So I'll just read the, ver- the verse. Um, uh, oh, yeah. He, if he's above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are, are believers or faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, if, if the rule is that his kids have to be Christians, in my mind that raises some really weird issues with regard to God's sovereign election. It's basically saying, like, if he's a good dad, God must have elected his kids for salvation. If that, doesn't, if that just seems theologically troublesome, troubling. <laughs> Um, also, and, 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 and just, it, it, we, we see it. There are faithful parents whose kids don't grow up in belief. I don't think that means, and, and the, the thing is sort of the logic of like, can he, 
shepherd the flock. I don't think that's a reflection of whether he can shepherd the flock. I don't think that. And then the, the examples he gives are basically unruly lifestyles, um, which seems, again, to say, like, if you've got a, a – while a kid and, – and the age thing, I, I wouldn't say 18 like a hard, strict thing. I would say to some degree it's like while they're in the home. And responsibility for kids' conduct will, will shift as they get older into adulthood. But um, if you've got, say, let's say a teenage kid in the home who is just visibly living a really um, dissipate, kind of like disorderly, wicked lifestyle, that's a huge like, uh-oh, this guy is probably not managing his kids. It's probably not wise. It isn't wise. So that kind of thing. That's I, what, what I believe Paul's saying. Who had a son? Who has a son that's in his forty, early forties, probably right around forty. That totally doesn't go to church. Doesn't doesn't mm-hmm. uh, dis- doesn't associate at all with the church or anything like that. I just wondered if, if that was considered past the time that yeah. out of the home for many years, mm-hmm. it's no longer responsibility or held against the the elder or potential elder. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could see. Well, I don't want to get into too many hypotheticals. No. Yeah, Greg. Accent in that, and, and to your point, Paul, like with that specific thing, there might be some consideration of what the nature of things were like when that forty-year-old was in the home. That's what I was kid. kind of about yeah. to say. Yeah, yeah. There might be things there, but hand in hand with what Tim's affirmed in Titus one, the parallel passage in First Timothy three, you know, where Paul's describing qualifications for an elder says that he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive for if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And the, the point of consideration is the qualification of a potential elder. It's not about the inherent um, spiritual condition of the kids. It's how yeah. well he's managing in the home. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it seems to clearly be giving... Um, not a test of whether or not a child is converted, but how the father is shepherding, managing his home. Yeah. Even in the same sense that in the church, sadly, yeah. inevitably, you have church discipline situations yeah. where somebody shows themselves not to be a believer. Well, that doesn't mean that the pastors inherently weren't faithful. It just yeah. means they're shepherding and moving through a process of discipline. Yeah. So that's the point. And that it is debated sometimes what that means, but I, I think the weight is clearly on, yeah. it's not about the spiritual condition of the kid, it's about the spiritual qualification of, yeah. the, of the man. The manner of his leadership. In the home. Yeah. That's a good, yeah. Yeah, Christina, and then we'll, that'll be the last on this. And then we'll, I'm we'll, curious just if, if that could also be a seasonal thing for the qualifications of an elder, because I've seen like godly men walk through situations where you know, there are elders in their churches, their teenage daughter yeah. ends up pregnant or something like that, yeah, yeah. And, and they, for a season, need to concentrate on that. Yeah. It's not at all their godly. Yeah. But like, but for a season, they need to refocus there before they. Right. So this, yeah, we can see this as just sort of like a, a checklist and like, sorry, you don't qualify, you know, have a nice life. But um, a little more of a fuller sense of like, you know, I've heard, I've heard really good point of like, to serve that father, to free him up to do what he needs to do in the home, there could be a place for going, hey, this isn't the time. Focus on what God's given you at home, and we'll see about later. You know, there could be a time when it's, it's appropriate later. So, yeah, it's even part of, like, shepherding that guy and his family. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, here's a question, the last question I had, and I did get another really good question. I'm probably gonna, uh, in the newsletter video next week, deal with that one, so that's bonus content, as I told the person who asked that question. Uh, but this is another one I got earlier. What should we think about the recent news that Pastor Alistair Begg uh, advised a Christian grandmother to attend her granddaughter's gay wedding? So maybe you heard about this, there's a bit of kerfuffle in the Christian news world. So Alistair Begg is a pastor in Cleveland. He's, I believe, a faithful, godly preacher, and he's a, he's a staunch supporter of the biblical, correct, traditional view of homosexuality and marriage. He's against gay marriage. Recently, he said, I think in a sermon, he said that a while earlier, he had advised a woman to attend her granddaughter's uh, same-sex wedding. Um, and he presented this under the banner of loving one's enemies and disarming with kindness um, those who expect us to hate them, kind of cultural enemies, and saying, like, she probably thinks you hate her, so go to her wedding, give her a nice gift, like, show love that way is essentially his answer. Um, and I'd affirm the biblical value of loving our enemies and showing kindness to those who might oppose us. Um, he, he faced serious backlash. His nationwide kind of radio network that carries his preaching, I think, dropped him. I don't know if that means, like, he's not on the radio anymore around here. I don't know. One of them. Okay, so there are others. Okay, yeah. He was removed from Shepherd's Conference, which he was, he was slated to speak at next month. Um, so what do I think about that? Well, time's up. <laughs> no. On the one hand, I strongly disagree with the advice he gave that, that woman. So I want to say very clearly, um, attending a wedding necessarily and unavoidably lends support to the event. Okay, it communicates endorsement. There is no, in my judgment, there's just no way around that. You are endorsing the event. And the event, if it purports to, to form a union, a marriage union between two people of the same sex, that is an abomination. That's what God, God defines marriage else in a different way. This is against nature. This is against what God designed marriage to be. So I don't believe Christians can attend a same-sex wedding because by attending you are communicating endorsement to that event, to that union. Um, in the old word, in being there, the old word is that you're solemnizing a marriage. That's kind of what your presence is, is implicitly communicating. So this would dishonor the marriage bed in terms of Hebrews 13.4. Uh, Romans 1.32 talks about those who give approval to those who practice these, these wicked things. And even if unintentionally, it is a communication of approval. Uh, it's, I believe, a violation of the Ninth Commandment. It's dishonest to go to something that you believe mocks God as though it were legitimate. Okay, that said, I think that canceling Alistair Begg over this device is also very wrongheaded. And, and I, I, I grieve at some of the reaction that he's gotten. Um, I believe that that reaction fails to distinguish between the primary ethical issue itself, as it appears in Scripture, and the less clear and more complicated matters of application. Um, now, I don't think the matter of application is totally uh, wide open. Where's my, uh-oh, here we go. Um, I, I do think his advice was wrong. I think that's a wrong answer. I think it was a, a foolish piece of advice, respectfully. But um, there is a huge difference between giving foolish advice of the application level of how to love one's enemies and react to this sin as it exists in the world versus being wrong on the issue itself, like telling somebody that homosexuality is okay or you can get married or something. That's on a very different level of biblical clarity 
And our response to somebody disagreeing should be very different with regard to the level of how clear and how primary biblically it is. Um, those, are, those are different orders of magnitude. And Christians, um, this is something to expect. Christians who are faithful on the Bible's teaching about sexuality are going to have some differences in how we discern how to walk in all these complicated issues of how to interface with the world over these things. And that doesn't mean by saying there's going to be differences and they're going to be hard, that doesn't mean like everybody's right, it's just totally uh, open-ended. Like there are some wiser and less wise responses, I think some right and wrong responses, but there's also, I think humbly we have to recognize that these things get less and less clear and we're going to not hold each other to a standard as though they were giving up the, 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 the ethical issue itself. Um, and, uh, you know, Christians, Christians may think he's, he's being soft and compromising. As Christians, we need to love each other, and love gives each other the benefit of the doubt, believes all things in 1 Corinthians 13. Especially somebody who has a track record of faithfulness like that, I think it's just really a shame to kind of discard him like that. And I think um, in some ways it's drawing on the spirit of the age that that's, I, I said the word cancel for a reason. I mean, there's a sense of sort of like, just a more and more polarized culture we're living in where we just kind of say like, oh, you believe what? And then just sort of dismissal. And I fear that we as Christians can be drawn into that if we're not careful. Um, so that's my answer. I think that Meg gave a bad answer, but I think he's a fine pastor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, think, I think part of the reason why family radio canceled is because Alistair Begg, and I'm a person that listens to him in the morning at 7 yeah. o'clock, KFIA, I have one of his devotionals that I can look at and study. I think part of the reason they canceled him because he has doubled down. Mm-hmm. He has not came back and said, you know, what I was wrong, what I said was right. completely wrong, like what you just said. Yeah, yeah. Affirmed. That's part of the reason. He doubled down by calling people that question him Pharisees, mm-hmm. okay? And uh, so there's been a there's been a kind of a hard-heartedness on his part. And the other thing is that one of the crucial things that you haven't mentioned is that his influence on other pastors, because mm-hmm. he has a basics conference every mm-hmm. May or April or May at his church where thousands of pastors come, just like the Shepherd's Conference. And his influence on them, well, if Pastor Begg is saying this about mm-hmm. attending a gay marriage, man, I'm okay to say this to my congregation. Mm-hmm. So look at the influence that that comment had on a, lots and lots of people. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of the reason why Family Radio uh, canceled him, is because they, they didn't see any kind of uh, repentant attitude about what he said. Mm-hmm. And, and as far as I know, and I just listened to another podcast yesterday on it, that he hasn't come back and said, hey, what I said was wrong. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I haven't heard all of. I haven't heard all of what he said. I, I, I read a little bit of his response, and I, I may be misremembering. I don't recall him saying that everyone who questions him is Pharisaical, but I, I may have missed that. What I saw was maybe him saying, "I want to avoid us being Pharisaical and removing ourselves relationally from people by doing things like not going to their wedding, whatever." And I would disagree that that's fair. I would say. That's bad, and that's a wrong assessment. I would clearly say that. But I, yeah, I don't, I, I think it's an overreaction to kind of scrub him from, from any kind of influence. But there's this, of course, this is another judgment call, right? Like, this is a tertiary level. Like, what do we do about what he said, you know? So we, we might disagree on that, too. So we don't all have to, but uh, I saw a hand, uh, Chinway. And then I Rod. wonder, like, in terms of implications, like, besides just homosexual, Let's say a pro- 
professing believer who maybe got, I don't know, divorced unbiblically, wants to marry someone else, or maybe um, they're marrying an unbeliever, like, to yeah. attend those weddings, like, those are kind of other implications. Yeah. Because, like, are we giving, giving approval to, like, to the wedding, right, if we don't agree that this yeah. believer is doing it the correct thing? Right, that's a good point. There's, there could be other weddings that we should be thoughtful about whether to go to. I would say there maybe is a difference. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if, if, if I would say the same answer for all those. Because I will say there's a difference between a legitimate wedding that people are sinfully entering a marriage versus a non-marriage that people are masquerading as a marriage. That's a violation of nature. There is a moral difference there. Not sure what that means with regard to whether to go. That's a great conversation to have. But in my mind, it's very clear if this is a mockery against God and nature versus a, mm, that they should not be getting married, but it is a marriage, and marriage itself is a sacred thing. So, uh, Rodney, last word, and then we'll close. Oh. Well, well, I was just going to say, I think generally uh, the Christian life is um, really complicated yeah. and exhausting. And not that it's not fulfilling and satisfying and God doesn't, I mean, he meets us where we are. But as humans, we love to make things black and white yeah. because it's easier to yeah. say, nope, I'm not going to think about it anymore. But that is characteristically unbiblical yeah, yeah. because it stops us from being in a position of humbly asking yeah. for wisdom constantly over all of these things. Yeah. And uh, yes. that is why a community would turn against so quickly. Yeah, it's mentally and spiritually and emotionally a lot more of a costly place to be like, I love you, I think you're valuable, I disagree decisively with what you what you said. I mean, that's like a hard, it's just easier to be like, we'll forget that. <laughs> you know, so yeah, that is part of, and we just, part of that is let's take the takeaway, let's be aware of those dynamics working in our own hearts and drawing on kind of worldliness with regard to that. Yeah. A uh, quick, uh, Al Mohler talks about this too a little bit in the briefing. And, like he always, he'll always point with um, issues like this to the local church. Like go mm-hmm. get your advice from yeah, the local yeah. elders and, Ask and pastor. Yeah. The, the local body. Um, but as opposed to, you know, remote, like I, you know, I haven't heard of this person before. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And That's so cool. it's, yeah. Oh, who gave that advice, John? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's it, right? No, that's a really good point. Is just beware of kind of the celebrity preacher being your pastor, and, and yeah, just talk to your talk to your pastors for sure. Um, all right, let's close in prayer. But I'm of course glad to interact. Uh, some of the closing thoughts I'll maybe just deal with in the video too. So we'll do. God, thank you for this time to think uh, together about what your word says about marriage and family. And once again, we just pray that that uh, we would. Um, have roots that go deep into the gospel and that we would live by the resources that your spirit provides in holiness and in the the new person you've made us in Christ and that would work out in our family relationships in in increasingly beautiful ways for your your praise among us. Uh, And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.